Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 5, so feel free to turn there in their Bibles if you'd like to follow along. We're going to read Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in your holy and inspired word. Today, as we read your word, we do pray that you would speak to us. Father, teach us to be more like Jesus. We want to be faithful, and yet, Lord, we recognize we desperately need your help. Father, we are thankful that we can know, even as we confessed earlier, that the blood of Jesus cleanses every sin of all who have truly placed their trust in him. And so, Lord, our desire is to live our lives for you out of the overflow of joy and thankfulness and obedience to Christ for your glory and for our good. Lord, to that end, we pray. We pray that you would help us. We pray that you would help me get out of your way as your preacher and that you would speak to us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I trust Many of you have probably never heard the name John Rogers. John Rogers was actually the first Christian martyr under the reign of Queen Mary I, otherwise known as Bloody Mary. She she was known as Bloody Mary because in her reign, she killed 288 men, women, and even children for no other reason than for their Protestant faith. John Rogers was educated in Cambridge and graduated in 1526. He became a Catholic priest and in due course began to struggle with Roman Catholic doctrine. He would later move to Belgium to serve as chaplain to English merchants. And there providentially he met a man you might have heard of, a man by the name of William Tyndale. Tyndale would teach Rogers the Bible and specifically he would teach him the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and Rogers was converted and became a follower of Jesus and was mentored by Tyndale. During this time, Rogers also met his wife, Adriana. They would go on and have 10 children together. After William Tyndale was arrested for his teaching and for his work on translating the Bible, John Rogers took over Tyndale's life's work of translating the Bible into the English language. Tyndale had already completed the New Testament and was working on the Old Testament, and so when he was imprisoned, he left the manuscripts to Rogers, who completed Tyndale's work under the pseudonym Thomas Matthew, thus known today as the Matthew's Bible, the first authorized English Bible. Rogers went on to pastor for a short time in Germany, but his heart was always for his homeland and the English people. And so when given the opportunity, he came back to London in 1548 with Adriana and their 
eight children at the time. In England, he preached, pastored, and worked hard at spreading Reformation theology under King Edward VI until the very day that Edward died. Soon thereafter, Mary won. Again, Bloody Mary declared herself to be the Queen of England. And Rogers and all other English reformers knew precisely where Mary stood as a staunch, devout Roman Catholic who was hell-bent on overturning everything Edward had sought to accomplish. Mary came to the throne Thursday, August 3rd, 1533. Rogers was to preach that very next Sunday. What would he do? Would he stand for righteousness? Would he preach the gospel for Christ's sake? Or would he shrink back, even just a bit, and preach a safe sermon to save his own neck? Well, Sunday, August 5th, with wife and now nine children under his care, Rogers climbed up into the pulpit and boldly preached the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he warned his church, his beloved flock, about the false teachings of Rome, warning against what he called pestilent popery, idolatry, and superstition. That sermon was his last. Rogers was immediately placed in house arrest. A year later, the new Bishop of London, you could insert Mary's bishop, sent him to the Newgate prison where he lived in cruel conditions and endured harsh treatment. In January 1555, he was examined on three separate occasions and had yet another choice to make. Once again, he must decide, would he take a stand for Christ's sake? Would he endure for righteousness' sake? Or would he shrink back, save his own neck? I mean, who could blame him, protect his family? When asked what he believed about the Lord's Supper, and this is important because the Roman Catholics teach transubstantiation, that when you partake of the body and blood of Christ, it becomes the real body and the real blood of Christ. Rogers about this said, quote, I was asked whether I believed in the sacrament to be the very body and blood of our Savior Christ that was born of the Virgin Mary and hanged on the cross really and substantially. I answered, I think that to be false. I cannot understand really and substantially to signify otherwise than corporally or bodily. But corporally, Christ, he said, is only in heaven. And so Christ cannot be corporally in your sacrament, end quote. That clarity sealed Roger's fate. And let's be clear why this was so important. The Roman Catholic teaching on the Lord's Supper cheapens the gospel it stands in direct contrast to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. John Rogers was thus sentenced to die. He had not been able to see his own wife and now ten children the whole time he had been in prison. didn't even have the opportunity to meet his youngest child who was born after he went into prison. His one request before he died was to speak to his wife, to see his family, and that request was cruelly denied. On the morning of February 4th, 1555, he was hastily aroused from his sleep. He was asked by the sheriff one last time if he would recant 
his faith and salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Rogers once again stood strong. He said, that which I have preached, I am now ready to seal with my blood. Rogers was then marched through the streets of Smithfield, the very parish he pastored, with the streets lined with people, like a parade, lined with people, many of whom had been under his care as their pastor. J.C. Ryle comments on this. He says, quote, On the morning of his martyrdom, he was roused hastily in his cell in Newgate and hardly allowed time to dress himself. He was then led forth to Smithfield on foot within sight of the church of the sepulcher where he had preached and through the streets of the parish where he had done the work of a pastor. By the wayside stood his wife and ten children, one a baby, whom Bishop Bonner in his diabolical cruelty had flatly refused him permission to see in, per in prison. He just saw them, but was hardly allowed to stop, and then walked on calmly to the stake, repeating the 51st Psalm, end quote. Think about that. Marching to his death, he sees his beloved wife, 10 children, one a baby he had never met. He had every opportunity to live. All he had to do was soften his views on the Bible. But he refused. He refused to deny what he knew to be the one true gospel. Ryle goes on, he says, quote, an immense crowd lined the street and filled every available spot in Smithfield. Up to that day, men could not tell how English reformers would behave in the face of death and could hardly believe that some would actually give their bodies to be burned for their religion. But when they saw John Rogers, the first martyr, walking steadily, unflinchingly into a fiery grave, the enthusiasm of the crowd knew no bounds. They rent the air with thunders of applause, end quote. Now let me just be clear, the applause were not because most of them were glad he was burning, glad that he was dead. They were in awe, inspired by the one who was willing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake, to be persecuted to the point of death for the cause of Christ. Now, why do I spend this time recounting a story of an old dead Englishman this morning? Well, it's because in our sermon text, Jesus tells us this kind of thing will happen. Turn with me in your Bibles to the passage already read for us, Matthew chapter 5. just want to reread those three verses again. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We're obviously sort of just parachuting into Matthew 5, a section referred to as the Beatitudes. And time precludes a good background study here, but I do want to point out that the Beatitudes are not 
entrance requirements into the kingdom. They are things that describe those who are actually part of the kingdom. These are descriptions of kingdom people, the king's people, King Jesus' people. And they're, and they're all challenging, this one particularly so. Here, here Jesus is telling us that one of the marks of his people is that they are those who are or will be persecuted. And so we want to begin by asking and trying to answer, what does it mean to be persecuted? And then we want to think through the promised blessing of those who are persecuted. So let's start with what it means. And this is important because Jesus doesn't say that his people might be persecuted. He doesn't say that a handful of his people will be persecuted. No, just as we're clear in reading the Beatitudes that all of the king's people are poor in spirit, all of them have mourned over their sin, all are meek, all hunger and thirst for righteousness, all are merciful, all are pure in heart, all are peacemakers. We must be equally clear that all Christ's followers are persecuted. So what does that mean? Blessed are those who are persecuted. Those who experience the joy or happiness of being accepted by God, that's that blessed are. Blessed are those who are persecuted. So what does that mean? Well, the first thing that we must see is that Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted specifically for righteousness' sake. And this is important for our understanding. Listen closely. Many so-called Christians endure hardship that they would call persecution, but what they're really experiencing is just their own just deserts for being sinful, even a jerk. And that's not what Jesus is speaking of here. Listen to the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' inner circle, a man no doubt sitting there when Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, no doubt had the opportunity to have follow-up questions about it. And in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 16, Peter says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So Peter's clear, isn't he? Ill treatment because, well, you're just mean is not persecution for righteousness' sake. It's simply one sinner responding to another sinner in kind. Ill treatment for your own sin is not the persecution Jesus speaks of here. And unfortunately, again, many so-called Christians do mean things and say ugly things to and about other people and then wear the harsh treatment they receive as a badge of honor as though they're somehow being persecuted for Christ's sake when they're not. They're being shown harsh treatment because that's what they've shown others and that's just the way the ungodly world works. So this is clarifying. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted 
for righteousness' sake. And by that, he's clearly referring to the persecution that comes from living a Christ-honoring life, one that follows the Lord Jesus, seeking to emulate him in all we do. John 15, 18 and following, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember, the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. And if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. See, the person, the persecution <clears throat> Jesus speaks of in Matthew 5 is that persecution that comes when his people are persecuted for following our king in righteousness. And that we're on the right track is clearly seen in Jesus' clarifying statement in verse 11. There he said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Don't miss the on my account. That's parallel to for righteousness sake. The, the persecution Jesus' people face is because of our union with Christ. And it is interesting when you follow the flow of the Beatitudes, how this lands. Because if you look just prior, Jesus has already said that his people are merciful and peacemakers. And you might read that and think, really? I mean, we think of those who are merciful to others, those who are all about working for peace, and you would think, man, oh man, sounds like a great recipe to win friends and influence people. But the reality is, working for peace, actually being about the work of a peacemaker includes, by necessity, pointing people to Jesus. It includes, by necessity of this work, mercifully calling out sin in the hopes that they don't die in their sin and that they might actually have peace with God and other believers. And in dealing with unbelievers outside of the church and sadly often within, well, that's not received well. Unbelievers wish to stay in their unforgiveness, wallow in their hatred, engage deeply in grumbling, complaining, and slanderous ways. I like how Don Carson says it in his commentary on Matthew. He says, quote, It is no accident that Jesus should pass from peacemaking to persecution. For the world enjoys its cherished hates and prejudices so much that the peacemaker is not always welcome. Opposition, he says, is a normal mark of being a disciple of Jesus, as normal as hungering and thirsting for righteousness or being merciful, end quote. John Stott says it this way, quote, It may seem strange that Jesus should pass from peacemaking to persecution, from the work of reconciliation to the experience of hostility. Yet, however hard we may try to make peace with some people, they refuse to live at peace with us. Not all attempts at reconciliation succeed. Indeed, some take the initiative to oppose us, and in particular to revile or slander us. This is not because of our foibles or idiosyncrasies, but for righteousness' sake and on my account. That is, because they find distasteful the righteousness for which we hunger and thirst 
and because they have rejected the Christ we seek to follow. Persecution is simply the clash between two irreconcilable value systems, end quote. I think both of these two brothers are helpful here. Yes, Christ's people are merciful. Yes, we are peacemakers. And equally, yes, such merciful actions in the name of Christ and such peacemaking in the name of Christ in no way insulates us from the persecution that Jesus speaks of here. Now, we've said a lot about persecution, but we need to talk about what that looks like. And here again, look back at the text because verses 11 through 12 help further define what Jesus has in mind with the word persecution. The word persecution itself can have a broad range of meaning. If you look in the standard Greek lexicon for this word that we translate as persecution, it says to harass someone because of their beliefs. Now, that definition can certainly include, and it often does in the New Testament, physical persecution, beatings, torture, even death. But Jesus makes it clear that he's not only Speaking of physical persecution here. Some wrongly think you've not endured biblical persecution unless you've endured the flame or the sword or at least had a good old-fashioned beating. But that's not what Jesus says here. Verse 11 is very helpful as he's offering further clarification for what he means by persecution. Again, no doubt it can be physical persecution, but verse 11 shows us that it can also be the wide range of ways we can be persecuted verbally. Sometimes persecution is when somebody reviles you or makes fun of you because you take a stand for Jesus. Oh, little Miss Goody Two-Shoes won't date a non-believer, won't have sex before marriage. Aren't you a little prude? Right? See, that fits what Jesus is teaching about persecution. You take a stand for Christ, people don't like it. You're being reviled because you stand up and say, this is what I believe. Sometimes you could be trying to help someone, serve as a peacemaker, all is well until you tell them that they're in sin and they slander you. That's the kind of persecution he's talking about. Think of, think of what Joseph endured at the hand of Potiphar's wife. He wasn't trying to sleep with her. She was trying to sleep with him. But because he refused, she lied and said he came on to her. And her husband believed her, took it out on Joseph. Again, this verbal persecution can take on a hundred different forms, which is why Jesus simply assumes all of his people will experience this in one way or the other. All you have to do is live for Jesus, take a stand for Christ, talk to people about Jesus, tell someone they're actually in sin, and people will eventually say unkind and often untrue things to you and about you. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking. You may be thinking, I hear all of that. I see it right here in the Word of God. But my own experience is different. I don't really face any of that in the real world. Right? Let me offer a quick qualification before I say what I feel like I have to say. As Christians, here's the qualification, as Christians, 
We never, ever go about pursuing persecution. Never, okay? Jesus doesn't say, blessed are you who seek out persecution. I already talked about being a jerk, you know, purposefully saying unkind things, purposefully just being all in, I mean, just being ugly about things. No, that's not it. Qualification over. That being said, some of us never endure so much as a raised eyebrow because no one even knows we're a Christian. Or if they do, we have done exactly what the world has demanded that we do, namely we have pushed our faith to the margins of our life. We've marginalized our faith. Today's cultural norms tell us you can believe anything you want to believe. You, you, you know that, right? You can believe anything you want to believe so long as you don't bring that into the public arena. But I think we understand that's not what our king's teaching us. In the next few verses, if we had time to cover them, we see that Christians are called to be salt and light. In fact, he says if salt loses its saltiness, it's worthless. He says no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. He says, let your light shine before others so that they see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Brothers and sisters, I, I say this gently but hopefully clearly. Some of us, at least in various seasons of our life, act like secret agent Christians and it's time we blow our cover. Some of us are unchristlike in the way that we hide our faith so that there is no way that we're going to offend someone. But there's equally and more tragically no way somebody's going to come to faith in Jesus through us. Notice that Jesus links our persecution with the prophets. It's helpful, isn't it? This link makes it clear that persecution comes as a result of speaking. Right? Think of the prophets. It comes as a result of speaking out for Christ, speaking out for righteousness. I, I trust we would all agree, read through the Old Testament, not one prophet, not one, was ever persecuted for keeping silent, right? They were persecuted for righteousness sake. They were persecuted because they spoke out about the importance of righteousness, about living for God. They called out ungodly kings of ungodly nations, and they called out ungodliness even among the context of, of the covenant community, even among Israel. And sinful people, wherever they were, did not like it. On the other hand, no one will ever say anything should we remain undercover agents. Right? No one will say anything if we never call sin, sin. You will not be persecuted, I promise you. You will not be persecuted for reading theology in your own study. Nobody cares about that. They don't. No one cares if you're able to sit around and talk finer points of theology with your Christian friends, but never open your mouth in public. Good theology without right proclamation is not what we're called to as Christians. On the contrary, it is precisely what our culture has called us to do. Culture says, keep quiet, keep your head down, keep your faith to yourself. And all too often we say, yes, master, to culture. And the result is that Jesus' teaching here on persecution and elsewhere in the Bible 
makes very little sense to many of us. And then when you read a passage like this that's supposed to comfort us and encourage us in the midst of it, we find no comfort or encouragement because, again, it makes no sense. And see, I want us to see where Jesus lands the plane because he's teaching us this to comfort us, to encourage us. Possession of the eternal kingdom is the beautiful promise that he gives for those who stand for Christ and endure persecution for following him and making much of him in our lives. Look, look back at the text one more time. Just read it with those lenses. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Notice the present possession that's so beautiful here. Blessed are those persecuted for righteousness' sake because yours is the kingdom of heaven. Each of what we call the Beatitudes have these promises at the end. And these promises have an already but not yet component to them. The king's people, those who have been made the king's people by faith in Christ, have already, as a current possession, the kingdom. We've been made right with God now by faith in Christ. Already, for those who believe in Christ, we have fellowship with God restored. Jesus came to earth, lived a perfectly righteous life, died a substitutionary death, rose from the dead, conquering the grave for sinners. And for those who believe, praise God, we are part of his kingdom now. And as wonderful as that reality is, it's not what Jesus is emphasizing here. Here, as made evident in verse 12, we're told that when we endure persecution, we should rejoice and be glad, not because we enjoy harsh treatment. No one likes that. We don't seek that. But we rejoice, he says, because our reward is, it's great in heaven. We rejoice precisely because we know what we have in the future with Christ. The Bible says we are co-heirs with Christ. And so because of faith in Jesus, on that final day, when he comes again, everything that's his will be yours if you're in Christ. And we will reign with him forever and ever. And so let me just speak to any unbelieving friends who might be here this morning. If you've been listening to this sermon, you know Christianity does not promise an easy life in the here and now. If you've heard the gospel preached that way, I'm here to tell you, you've heard a false gospel. Paul says all, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So I don't stand here as a preacher of righteousness and say the gospel offers an easy life in the here and now, but I do happily, with great excitement, say with all the confidence in the world that the gospel does offer you the sure promise of your sin forgiven because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross and therefore the righteousness before God that Christ gives us and thus, fellowship with God, relationship with God restored, and the promise of eternity in his presence. 
But to have that, you must believe, you must confess your sin and reject self-sufficiency. You must admit that you're spiritually bankrupt and confess that Jesus is your only hope, that Jesus is Lord. And I hold that out to any who are here not yet trusting in Christ. Look to him today. For those who do believe this, we have the sure promise of a great reward that scripture over and over again shows us is to be the north star for us, even in the face of hardship, unkind words, indeed even physical persecution that many of our forebears have gone through and many brothers and sisters today in other parts of the world. I started this sermon pointing to John Rogers and his martyrdom at the hands of Bloody Mary. What I want to show you now is what enabled Rogers to endure such persecution. And that was his clear, sure hope that he was made more, made for more than this short life. And as such, yes, he would miss his beloved wife and ten children, but he was sure that he must endure persecution for Christ's sake as he had the sure, certain hope of his reward in front of him all the way through. J.C. Ryle, at the end of his description of John Rogers' death, says that the French ambassador was actually present at the execution, and he wrote home, because he was so just amazed at what he had seen, he wrote home and said that Rogers went to his death as though walking to a wedding. John Rogers, as he sat in prison, wrote a poem for his wife and children, knowing he'd never see him again. And in it, his final hope is so clear. He had lines like, Give ear, my children, to my word, whom God had dearly bought. Lay up his laws in your heart and print them in your thought. I leave you here a little book for you to look upon, that you may see your father's face when he is dead and gone who for the hope of heavenly things, while he did here remain, gave over all his golden years to prison and to pain, or again, though here in body be adjudged in flaming fire to fry, my soul, I trust, will straight ascend to dwell with God on high. He was clear on his reward. Roland Taylor, another English reformer who was burned shortly after Rogers, as he was being marched to the stake, he was asked by the sheriff, how do you feel now? His response, God be praised, Master Sheriff, never better, for I am almost home. I lack but two styles to go over, and I am even at my father's house, end quote. Brothers and sisters, if we hope to stand firm in the face of the persecution that Jesus says all of his people will endure, whether it be reviling, ostracism, evil lies, or who knows, physical torture of some kind, even called to die for our faith, who knows where this crazy world's going. If we hope to stand firm and not deny Christ, then we too better be crystal clear this world is not our home. We better have our hearts so full of Christ, so full of eternity with him, that we, like Paul, would be able to say, to live is Christ, to die is gain. To live, I get Christ, 
because my life's all about ministry of Jesus. To die, it's gain. I gain what I've been living for. Brothers and sisters, Jesus says, blessed are you. Blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Let's pray. Father, help us to believe this word from your holy scripture. Help us to believe, to truly believe that the new heaven and new earth is so much better than here. Oh, Father, I pray, even as Paul taught us to pray just a couple of weeks ago, that you would empower us, that you would strengthen us to better understand, to have a comprehension of the amazing, unfathomable love of Christ, the love he has for us. And that as a result, Lord, we would grow in maturity. Our love for you would grow. Our love for your people would grow. That we would be the people you've called us to be for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.